What's up, guys? Welcome to the Engage JSU podcast. We are an on-campus ministry here at Jacksonville State University. We want to see God's kingdom come here at JSU as it is in heaven. tonight. And so the last three weeks, we've been going through our Foundations of Faith series. And the first question we asked was, who is God? And we saw that God is the majestic creator of all, who deserves all praise, honor, and glory. Then we looked at who is man or what is man. And we found that man is made by God in God's image. And that gives man an inherent worth. But we also found that man is also fallen in sin and deserves God's punishment for rebelling against him. Last week we looked at who is Jesus and we found that Jesus is the God-man who offers salvation and right relationship with God. We saw that Jesus is the word of God, the image of God, and the lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. And so all of this leads us to our final foundation, our final question that we would think about on this last night of our Foundations of Faith series. As we think about who God is, what man is, and who Jesus is, how should we respond? And we'll be answering that question tonight from Acts chapter 26, And we'll be looking at verses 13 through 18. That's Acts chapter 26, verses 13 through 18. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for all that you have revealed to us in your word. Thank you for showing us your character and how we've been made to reflect your glory. Thank you for sending us your son to die on a cross for us. Father, tonight I ask as we look at how we are to respond to your glorious gospel that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, and open our ears to receive what you have said. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I don't know about you, but so many times in my life, I found myself laughing at the wrong time. How many of you have ever struggled with inappropriate laughter? Yeah, I see those hands. It's like a nervous psychological tick or something. I don't know, but it's one that I 
suffer from. And the harder you try to be serious in a moment like that, it's like the more you want to laugh. It's really sick, but that's what happens. You, you, you find yourself laughing at something that's completely inappropriate. One time I was hanging out with one of my really good friends and he had a daughter that was about two years old and we were just hanging out and talking while we were watching her and she was playing with these little characters. She had like little cartoon characters that she was playing with. And uh, for some reason she picked up one of these little characters, I think it was like Donald Duck or Goofy or something. And she looked right at her dad and she just threw it right at his head. <laughs> and uh, you know, he tried to get real serious and be like, no, don't do that. And I am trying so hard not to laugh because I, I thought it was the cutest and funniest thing I had ever seen was this two-year-old throwing, deliberately throwing a character at her dad. So of course what happens next is he says, don't do that, don't do that, that's not nice. And uh, she picks another one up, just looks at him right as he says that. Number two, Donald Duck, to the face. And at this point, I lost it, right? I was laughing, and of course he's just looking at me like, man, seriously, you're gonna laugh? I am dying of laughter, and what does this do? I mean, she starts laughing, she thinks it's hilarious. She takes all her toys and starts flinging them across the room. That's what happened because I didn't respond rightly. That was a moment where I wasn't supposed to laugh. I was supposed to, you know, hold the line for the guys, help my dad be a good dad, and I responded wrongly. And it's kind of similar to what we see in the book of Acts. Really, in the whole Bible, we see that there is a right response to Jesus and a wrong response to Jesus. And so tonight I want us to see that the right response to Jesus is that we must put our faith in him and turn from sin. Since Christ offers forgiveness, we must put our faith in him and turn from our sin. So here in Acts, we see Paul's been arrested for preaching the gospel, right? And, and he's given permission by this king, King Agrippa, who has come into town. He's given Paul permission to speak and defend himself. And so when given the chance, Paul recounts his testimony to King Agrippa. And that's what I want to look at, and that's what I want us to focus on as we look to how we are to respond to the gospel. I'll read verses 13 through 18, but really we're going to focus in really just on one verse. That's verse 18 to see how Paul responds and how he's called to respond. Verse 13 of chapter 26 of the book of Acts. At midday, O king, this is Paul speaking to the king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. 
And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. And here's where we're going to focus in. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So when Paul recounts his testimony to King Agrippa and he speaks boldly in front of the king, he recounts this story of himself being saved by Jesus, which is a, a, a miraculous and crazy sounding story. But what I think is profound is what Jesus tells Paul. What, what he tells him to do. After Paul's converted, what is Paul to do? He says that he sent to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. So in verse 18, it says to do what? To open their eyes. And so I want to stop there really quick because I don't, I don't think that that language is by accident. Because when we talked about humankind and mankind in our What is Man series, we showed that mankind is spiritually dead. We showed that mankind doesn't desire the things of God and mankind can't please God in his spiritual deadness. But another metaphor that the Bible likes to use for spiritual deadness towards God is blindness. Especially you see this in the Gospels where Jesus is healing blind people. And he'll often say, and he'll often show through this healing of blind people that what humankind needs are spiritual blindness to be cured so that we can see God for who he truly is. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus refers to the Pharisees as blind. I'm sure you've heard of the phrase, the blind leading the blind. 2 Corinthians 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 4 puts it this way. It says this, in their case, Speaking of unbelievers, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we see that this metaphor for being blind, for opening their eyes, is really to show that they should be given spiritual life. They need to have eyes to see the light of the gospel. And, and this is what Paul is called to do. Another way that 
Jesus and in the Gospels this is referred to, it's often referred to being born again, being given spiritual life. Theologians often refer to this concept as regeneration, to be given life. But it's kind of interesting, why, why does Jesus tell Paul to open their eyes? Because this spiritual act of life, really this is miraculous. It's, it's meant to mirror Jesus healing physical blindness and, and doesn't only God give miraculous life? Doesn't only God give miraculous sight to the spiritually blind? Well, I think those two things don't contradict because just like any other miracle that the apostles did in the book of Acts, it's the spirit of God working through the human person. And so this is why the Bible can say things like in 2 Corinthians, for God who said, let light, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it can also say things like in Romans 10, where Paul says, how then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So it's the power of God through the preaching of the gospel that gives life to the dead and opens the eyes of the blind. But, but if we keep going, we, we, we see Jesus tell Paul to open their eyes, so what? So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So once eyes are opened and once spiritual life is given, what happens? What, what does it look like? What follows being spiritually alive? And here we see it is turning. It's turning from something, and it's turning to something. It's turning from darkness and being under the power of Satan, and it's turning to light and submitting to God. You see it right there in verse 18. So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And so what accompanies this turning? Well, we see here that forgiveness of sin and a place among the people of God. And how are these people of God described? As those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. So the biblical pattern we see here in Acts is that one who is made alive by God 
is someone who turns from their sin and turns to God in faith. They, they turn from darkness and they turn to light. They're, they have their faith in God. And, and not just God, but they have their faith in the person and work of Jesus. So really, faith in God and the son that he sent and repentance from sin is the answer and the right response to the gospel. But even more simply, the right response to the gospel is faith and repentance. And so now that we've made it all the way here, we haven't even talked about what faith is. So let's look at what faith is. I think there's a really great passage in Romans that describes faith really well. It's Romans chapter four, verses 19. You can write it down or you can go there. Romans chapter four, verses 19. And this is speaking about Abraham. This is Paul speaking about Abraham and his faith. And Paul says this, he, that is Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And so if you're unfamiliar with the story of Abraham and his promised son, just know this, to sum it up, even from this text we can see that the faith described here is a convinced mind and a believing heart in the promises of God. I like the way that one theologian, John Frame, defines saving faith in his systematic theology, he says that saving faith consists of three things, knowledge, belief, and trust. Saving faith is the knowledge of what Christ has done for us, a belief that it is true, and a trust that is evidenced by action. I'll say that one more time. Saving faith is a knowledge of what God has done in Christ, a belief that it is true, and a trust that is evidenced by action. I'm probably not the only person in here who is a little bit afraid to fly on an airplane. I mean, I've done it many times, but no matter how many times I step onto an airplane, right before it takes off, I have that little twinge of nervousness. Like, is this thing really gonna fly? I don't know, I don't get it. It's mostly just during the takeoff and then once I'm in the air, I'm fine. But 
sometimes in the middle of the flight, I'm kind of thinking, man, I am hurling through the sky in a metal box. And of course it has like an engine and wings, but if I say that, it doesn't sound as dramatic in my head, so I usually skip that part. But one of the things that scares me the most about flying is the amount of control that I give up, right? I mean, if you're riding in the car with someone, I mean, we all have friends who just can't drive and we have anxiety every time we ride with them, right? Everybody now is like looking at that friend, like you are the man. <laughs> but if you're riding in a car with somebody who can't drive, you always feel like maybe you have that little bit of control that you could reach over to the steering wheel or you could tell them, please stop doing that. You're driving like a maniac. But, but with a plane, it, it's, it's kind of different. I mean, you can't speak to the pilot. You, you can't communicate. And even if you could, you really wouldn't know what to tell them, right? There's much that we can't know and we can't control. But we still pay for tickets and we still give our luggage and we still sit down in the seat and we still pretend to listen when they give the whole mask if the plane goes down thing, and you think, man, if this plane goes down, I'm just out, I'm done. <laughs> I'm not surviving a plane crash. But right, the, the pilots are educated, you know, the plane's been inspected. So we generally trust riding in an airplane. Be because even though we kinda can have anxiety about it, we still trust the facts, right? You know, this is really safe. I'm, I'm being weird. Everybody else is on this plane. So we show with our actions that we believe it's safe. We, we put our trust in the pilot and in the plane really by getting on and sitting down. And I think this illustrates well how we're to trust and put our faith in Christ. We, we take what we know about him, we take what we've learned, and our trust in him is evidenced by our action. Even, even without perfect knowledge of how the plane works and how it's flown, you can put faith in the airplane. And even without a perfect knowledge of every single aspect of theology, the knowledge that you do have that Jesus Christ died in your place, that God sent him as a ransom for your sin, even with that knowledge, you can put your faith in him. And so one of the things that that means for us in our day-to-day -day is that we can never separate saving faith from knowledge. Sometimes people describe Christianity or, or having faith as a leap of faith. But we have to know something in order to put our faith in it. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. 
We, we know about what he did and the miracles he performed, how he rose from the grave on the third day. And we put our faith in him, not, not in a blind faith kind of way, but really because we know who he is and we trust him. And that also means, too, that when we're sharing our faith with people who don't know Christ, we have to make sure that we actually are communicating the contents of the gospel, the information that it takes to know God and be saved. There's, there's no salvation apart from knowing what God did, knowing who we are, and putting our faith in that. But as you hear about faith, you may be a person who thinks to yourself, I don't really describe myself as having faith. Maybe you want to put your faith in Christ, but maybe you have doubts. Maybe, maybe you feel like it wouldn't be honest to say that your mind is fully made up. And I, I just want to say to you that that's okay. Because, see, saving faith doesn't mean that you never doubt, and it doesn't mean that your knowledge is perfect, that you know all things and you know everything. As fallen humans, as we talked about two weeks ago, our knowledge will never be perfect. There will always be a question that you can't answer. But saving faith, being convinced, doesn't mean you never doubt and that you have all the answers, but it means that you are trusting in the one who does. Because part of our faith is trusting the promises of God like Abraham, even without perfect knowledge. So faith is saying, based on the evidence I do have, I put my faith and trust in God and in Christ as my Savior. But let's keep going. We talked about faith but I want us to see that if the right response to the gospel is faith in God and repentance from sin, what, what does repentance mean? Maybe you've never really heard that word or maybe you've heard it but haven't thought of it. But repentance is simply a turning away from. In this case, a, a turning away from a lifestyle of sin. Our text tonight describes it this way, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That turning from darkness to light and turning from the power of Satan to submission to God, that, that's repentance. The turning away from being repentance, and the turning to being faith. And when our eyes are opened, like this passage so eloquently puts it, when our, when our eyes are opened to the horrors of our sin, 
into the goodness and the mercy of God. We renounce our sin and we begin the long, hard road of fighting against it, abstaining from it, and seeing it for what it truly is. One of my professors in seminary used to say, repentance is not an act. It is a long, hard road. And that's so true. Repentance is not about a one-time renunciation of sin, but, but it involves the hard work of the continual progression in holiness. So if you kind of think about it like a road, repentance is turning around from a life pursuing yourself and your flesh, and it is turning to Christ and pursuing Christ. The book of 1 John, chapter 1, verse 5, puts it this way. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Don't you love how the book of 1 John gives us a strong word of, hey, make sure that you are in the faith. If you're walking in darkness, you are not a believer. But then he follows up with, but wait a minute, because I know some of you are thinking it. If you say you have no sin, you're a liar. Because we all have sin that we continually have to repent from turning to Christ over and over in our Christian walk. A couple of verses after our text in Acts, Paul says that he declares the gospel so that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And so you see, just like in that passage in 1 John, repentance is not sinless perfection, but rather... It's about direction. You're moving in a direction. Which direction is it? So as we talk about repentance, and we think about turning from sin to God, we, we, we have to know that our works cannot save us. Rather, you are saved by the object of your faith. You're saved by Jesus. 
Repentance and faith are not good works that save you, but they're the right response that show you that you've accepted the work of Jesus on your behalf. And so if repentance and faith are really two ways of describing the same thing, you can't really have one without the other. If you're claiming to have faith in Christ, but have no repentance from sin, you, you do have to question that faith. If you have faith in Christ, but zero growth, you, you, you should take a look at your life and examine yourself. But, but with that being said, the, the Christian life is not one static elevator ride to heaven. It's not one static escalator ride to sanctification. There are ups and there are downs and there's sin that can cling closely for a season or, or even, even unto death. But, but it's really about the pattern of your life over time. It's about your attitude towards sin and, and your actions concerning it. When you think of sin, do you love it and enjoy it and pursue it? Or do you fight it and hate it and long to be free? When God opens your eyes and gives you spiritual sight, you behold his beauty and run to him, fleeing from the sin that entangles you. The sweet promise of Paul's testimony in Acts 26 is what Jesus says at the end. That those who turn from darkness to light and put their faith in Jesus are given forgiveness of sin. They're given a community of people who live in the light and walk in love. They're given a place among those who are cleansed by Jesus. They're given God. Don't you want God? Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for sending your son to die for us. Thank you for revealing who you are as majestic creator of all. Thank you for showing us who we are, that we would know that we rebelled against you. But God, thank you for making a way for us in Jesus. That through no work of our own, but a simple trusting of Jesus and turning away from our sin, we could be given life everlasting. 
And we could be given a place among your people. Father, we could be given eternal communion with you. Father, would you wake up the hearts that are dead to you tonight? Would you open the eyes of the spiritually blind even now as I preach the gospel? Would you give hope where there is no hope, light where there's only darkness, and the power to trust in your son? We ask and pray all these things in his name. Amen.